If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. So I was just going to read um, for... Uh, ten minutes. This is a short story which is currently unpublished, um, and this is, it's, it's called Estate, uh, and it's this is a this is a, a, a truncated version to fit into ten minutes. So if it if it seems a little brusque to you, um, the, the published version will be better. I hope. Okay. Once when I was young, before we moved to the estate, our cat was in heat. My mother explained it carefully. And as I closed my bedroom curtains, I saw that the tree in our yard was full of cats. They were switching their tails as the light went down. They were all staring, it seemed to me, at me. They started up these boy-like, horny Tom cries. Now, an adult, I listened to fox calls one night. There's a park near my flat with a little playground populated by friendly plastic animals. One of them's a fox, with bright red fur and a blue cap. Under a street lamp was a notice board for my tenants' association, a sign about a coffee morning, recycling, a meeting about regeneration called by a social capital group called Obios. The name of one of their organisers was familiar to me. I walked. There's a robin next to the fox in the playground. It's about the size of a three-year-old child, dressed like a pirate. There's a badger and a pig, They're the same size. They aren't to scale. There was no rain, but the air felt wet. I heard percussion, hooves. I could smell pollen. Light was coming up from an unkempt side street. The air was full of dust and little leaves. I had to squint to see. The shadows of trees jumped. Wavering light reflected in the windows of a shop, in the machines that, for a few coins, would spit out toys and sweets. When I reached the side street, I smelt smoke, but there was no fire anywhere. There was no sound. The next day, in front of one small house, a young family giggled at their fussing baby. They seemed delighted. Can you believe it, the mother said. You were so ill last night, and now look at you. The baby burped, and everyone laughed. The bush in their garden looked freshly ripped, missing foliage. I tugged at one of the broken branches as if my hand was something grazing as it passed. 
In the estate, people were clustered in little groups. A lot of them I didn't recognize, and that's surprising when you've been there as long as I have. Some wore smart country clothes. At 10 p.m., I heard a clacking. There was a brief cheer. People came from behind one of the towers, eight or nine of them in overalls, with sports bags over their shoulders. Each carried a pointed stick and speared litter. There was a woman who couldn't have been older than 19, a man in his 60s, waving like a celebrity. And in front of them all was someone I'd not seen for years, a guy called Dan, who'd been expelled from my school. The new arrivals whispered, pointed down passageways and under concrete. They slapped hands in a complicated salute and separated, and we scattered after them. It took him a moment, but I could see Dan knew me. You all right? He touched his finger to his forehead. He was elegant. A group of teenagers passed me. Sharp talking to him, one said to me. Man's focusing. Dan fingered walls and bollards. He knelt by a knocked-over bin. He took us down routes I'd never seen. The bases of the brown towers ran up to the surrounding streets, which were not deserted. Cars crossed the bridge over the canal. Dan stopped suddenly in the light of late-night shops, and we all stopped with him, and he stared into shadows and bike sheds, derelict, their doors permanently open. Very slowly, he put his stick and sack down. Firelight flared. There was a roar of burning. A stag walked out of the dark. It shone. Its antlers were on fire. The stag was huge. It regarded us without fear. The antlers were like the branches of a great tree. They rushed with flame. They lit the cars and the lots. The antlers spat. The stag swung its brawny neck. It walked with forest calm. It paused and lapped at a gutter. We didn't move. I heard screaming. Two men came out of a late-night shop, stared and ran. One fell backwards and kept scooting along the pavement on his arse. The other came back for him. Fire spread along the animal's tines. Dan was clicking something together. A rifle. One of the boys on bikes whooped and Dan shouted, Enough! without looking round. Clots of stuff fell from the stag's head and made its pelt smoulder. It crossed the road close to us. I smelt the burning hair. The animal was twitching. Dan sighted. His quarry hesitated. It swayed. The fire accelerated, crawling down the antlers. Dan fired. The stag spasmed and buckled and bowed. There were whoops, but Dan cursed. It wasn't his bullet that had done this. Flames began to take the stag's big head. Dan took aim again, but a car careered across the road. The deer was too lost to look, if it even had eyes still and they weren't burnt up. The car slammed into its kneeling body. The burning animal flew into the railing on the bridge. Its antlers splintered, leaving stumps in the head-shaped fire. Fuck, Dan said. The deer was half off the bridge, fitting. You could see its teeth through the fire, pulling back its lips. It lolled. Its weight shifted and it tipped, and we all shouted, No, as if that might stop it falling, but it didn't. We heard it hit the water. What does that mean? Someone said at last. Did it work? Well, you can't tell straight away. What do you think? Dan was disassembling his rifle. 
He rolled his eyes at me in an ah well sort of way. I was the only one who saw him walk quickly away back into the estate. Everyone else was by the railings, watching the smoking carcass Bob rump up in the canal. The council got it out with a crane from the building site on the other side of the water the next day. The operator lowered the hook and the stag dangled and rose dripping in chains. There was a public meeting. I heard it was confused. You heard a lot about the stag on the, on the estate in those days, of course, but nothing that made any sense. I thought that would be the end of it. But a month later, the office of the government's head vet held a press conference to discuss the post-mortem. The underside of the hooves, they said, had been coated with an epoxy like dense rubber. The antlers had been saturated in something bituminous, long and slow burning, except where they protruded from the skull and skin, and there they'd been treated with retardant to slow the creep of fire. The animal's blood was full of a ketamine derivative, which closed down pain sensors, numbed flight-fight instincts. It had been made into a deer, unconcerned that its antlers were on fire. It had been dying while we followed it, in a poisoned stupor, burning alive. The obvious posters faded. The flat that had been Dan's family's was long empty. I walked past a laundrette and a teenage boy opened the door and came out in a fug of drying smell and said to me, I seen you was looking for the Dan man. I've got something for you. You want this, he said. You want it, yes or no, it's a hundred. He had a short length of blackened antler. Put that in your house, gives you money. Put it in your garden, makes your plants grow. He gave me more reasons I should buy it, and I did. It was surprisingly light. I put it on top of my TV, as he also suggested. Makes your reception perfect, he said. Check Channel 4 tonight. The footage was of the rolling of the fiery barrel or whatever, some harvest festival in a market town. Well, look at you, I said, as if the man on screen could hear me. Dan was one of those hoisting a burning thing onto his shoulders, carrying whatever it was, wherever. Two months after Dan disappeared in Birmingham and then in Glasgow, burning antlered stags sauntered down main streets. In Birmingham, someone in the crowd shot the deer dead. The one in Glasgow died by itself. A huge albino animal, its head under a corona of fire, went walking in a rundown neighborhood of Montreal to be put down by terrified cops. A stag set off in a Parisian banlieue at midnight, followed by awestruck youth, but something was wrong with its preparation, and it collapsed and started dying almost immediately. No one's ever been caught preparing or releasing these beasts. In New York, two days ago, someone let scores of hares loose on Roosevelt Island. They went racing everywhere, jumping and feverish and boxing each other, all sinewy and pugnacious in the waste ground. There was something glinty and wrong with their ears. I saw it on YouTube. Within a few minutes, they started to die. They weren't afraid of the locals who tried to grab them and sometimes disastrously succeeded. Running the length of each hare's ear was a knife. They slashed people's hands. They were like straight razors, one end driven through the fur into the skulls. The blades protruded, sutured to the ears with fishing wire. The clots and bloodstains resulting had been bleached invisible, but if you held the dying things carefully and looked closely, you could see the join. 
They're building a new playground. I looked at the plans. It's going to be better. I saw diggers and men in overalls getting ready to uproot the plastic fox and all the others. What will happen to them, I asked. And the men shrugged. I keep imagining those garish animals in a landfill under the earth. That's a state. Thank you. Well, I did have a very uh, elaborate and thoroughly researched question um, to start with, but um, after hearing that story and and the introduction you were giving, it, it occurred to me whether you're comfortable being introduced as a specifically a writer of science fiction and, and fantasy, and whether you find it strange that we have to append a, a category to your to your writing. I don't find it strange. I'm really used to it, um, and um, I mean I'm. No, I don't. I don't mind at all. But I'm kind of trapped in a double bind because it, if I now ever don't say that, I will be held up as Judas by my geek <laughs> community. So, um, so my wants are not really the only driver here. Um, but, uh, but I don't mind. I mean, I mean, we talked about this when we when we did the, the thing with the, the magazine. I, I, I think for me, partly, it's just a question of respect. Is that I feel, even when I write things that don't have an explicitly fantastic element. They very much come out of that, that tradition, and so I don't... There's a slightly polemical element to it, but it, it's also just a question of truth. I don't, I don't mind that at all, and that doesn't mean that I don't want people that wouldn't normally read that stuff to read it. I do, but, but, but not at the expense of hat-tipping that tradition, I guess. Mm. Well, it just yeah, it struck me that you know, you're writing... Uh, that a lot of experimental writing or, or writing that takes on unusual themes or tries to create new worlds uh, and uses new languages is categorised, I wouldn't say dismissed, but categorised as science fiction and fantasy. And I want to kind of leads me back by a very circuitous route to my, to my original question, which was that in researching this, or researching our interview that we did for the magazine, I came across this essay by Ursula K. Le Guin in which she said that the responsibility of the, responsibility of the fantasy writer is to make their worlds... She says not too accessible, that they should be strange, and that making them strange involves using language in a specific way. Um, and I wanted to broach that question of accessibility and language with respect to your own work. Okay. Is it, <laughs> is it do you feel like you're sacrificing accessibility to explore the writing you want to do? Do you think it, do you think it removes it from people? Uh, do you mean accessibility at the level of the form of the language, or in I the mean content? at a kind of sentence level almost? Uh, um, I mean, maybe maybe sometimes, but um, I mean, you're going to you're going to kind of um, lose some people no matter what you do, I guess. And I think I'm I, I I never mind I never as a reader I never mind not understanding what's going on. That can be quite exciting for me. It kind of depends on the book, and it depends on the project, and it depends on my my sense of trust or otherwise in the writer but I don't for me at least prima facie the criticism of a novel I didn't understand what was going on mm. you know especially if you're talking about the first few pages you know took me a hundred pages I didn't understand what was going on I, I, to me this is like a non-criticism this is like the criticism like I didn't like the main character it's just it's just at right angles to anything interesting or useful you know um, um, and sometimes not understanding is the whole point um I think I would say there's two different levels at, at which you, you maybe sacrifice. Um, I mean, accessibility is a terrible word, really. Um, it's like readability. 
Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think there's two levels. I think, you know, the, the genre thing does, does kick in here because if you're a writer, there, there are reading protocols, and if you're, a re, if you're a reader who is used to the reading protocols of a particular uh, tradition, you know, and you come across a description of, you know, um, you know las-molded, something was las-molded, then you are probably going to say, okay, it was molded by a laser. Sure. <laughs> you know, uh, if you don't come out of that tradition, you're not going to have any understanding what that is. So, and to a certain extent, that's just a question of kind of learning uh, certain protocols. Um, but then there's, then there's the other thing, which is about sort of trying to kind of play and experiment with, with the form of language. And, um, and that cuts across, that's not a generic divide. There are plenty of genre readers who, who don't like, who don't enjoy any kind of experimental mm. uh, experimentation at a formal level or whatever. Um, I, I, I don't, I mean, I think you probably gain as much as you lose that way. Um, so I, it's not something that, it's not something I'm terribly worried about. But I think that's largely just because I've been very lucky because I've never particularly policed what I try and write at a, at a sentence level, you mm. know. I know lots of people don't like my sentences, that's fine, but um, it's not fine, it's a fucking abomination. But, um, <laughs> but I accept their right to not like them. Um, I don't accept their right, actually. But I, yeah, um, um, so, I mean, there, there are times, this is very rambling, sorry, but like the, the book that I was probably most formally experimental about, I thought, was Iron Council, and there's mm. no question that alienated a lot of readers. Um, but Equally, it's probably the book I'm, in some ways I'm proudest of. So, I, I, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's a luxury, and you are asking readers an indulgence, but I don't think it's a, a giant problem. What was it with respect to Iron Council that you think... Because uh, it is formally very expensive. It takes in so many different genres. Is one way, you know, I've kind of read it, that you've got the Western there, you have this kind of, you know, fantasy novel there, you have a novel that's about a revolution in a city... Um, was it that combination of genres? Did people feel like it was an abandonment of the genre tradition? Is that what alienated people? Or was it something no. more about about the actual uh, the form of it beyond that? I don't think it was that. And I think, I mean, a lot of people who don't like it say say that the thing that they didn't like about it was that it was too political. Mm. I'm, I actually, I mean, that, okay, maybe, maybe for some people, but I don't think at a, I don't think that's what alienated most readers. I think it was to do with the sentences. I think I think it's 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 um, you know sometimes you sometimes you want to either write or read sentences which ask quite an active act of interpretation that you mm-hmm. have to wrestle with a certain amount and you don't want to read that all the time you don't want to write it all the time but I think I suspect that the main reason that that book alienated some readers is that um, it, it is written in an, in a kind of mostly in a fairly highly unnaturalistic style, but it's not the unnaturalistic style of something like Perdido Street Station, which is more obviously out of the kind of Rococo pulp tradition, which is also unnatural, but is much more uh, obviously situated within its antecedents, I suspect. Mm-hmm. But I'm probably the worst judge, so that's my theory. Well, one phrase that, I've, you know, that, you, that you've repeated previously and that I wanted to talk about a little was this idea of... You've criticised some fiction for prioritising what you said is recognition over estrangement, that it allows the reader, it's too familiar, that it doesn't ask the reader, it doesn't make the sentence feel strange. And is that something you're conscious of doing? Do you always want to make things feel strange or make the reader work or challenge them a little? Well, I mean, I, what, 
What I was mooting, and again, it's not an original insight, but what I was mooting is that there are these two poles, which is you know estrangement versus recognition. I think it would be a bit harsh to criticise something for going for one or the other. I think my position is that you know both of those draws and those centres of gravity allow you to do certain things, and I also don't want to dissemble about the fact that for me estrangement is more exciting than recognition, mm. and I think a lot of uh, you know, and, and this is this is this is partly in a way to try to think out outside of uh, a more sort of traditional notion of literary fiction versus genre fiction. You know, because you can think of fiction from within each of those traditions. Although you know, very very broadly, one might map onto the onto one, one onto mm-hmm. the other. But actually, you can think of plenty of works in both camps that are much more cl- closely allied to uh, seemingly the other camp. One of the reasons this interested me was that it gave me a way of thinking about there's a, there's a certain kind of weird subtradition of books that have no supernatural or fantastic elements at all and yet which read as if they are um, books of the fantastic Can in some way. Can you give us some examples? Like Kafka, would that, would that be...? No, because that's got very overt fantastic elements. Okay, so who? Um, Charlotte Bronte. Charlotte Bronte. Yeah, Jane Eyre reads like a, like a, like a horror novel. It okay. reads like a supernatural novel. There's, there's, there's something not just sort of unnaturalistic, but deeply uncanny about the mm. entire book. Or there's that, if you think about I don't know if people saw that TV show, The Shadow Line, uh, which I thought was great. I loved The Shadow Line. And it had a figure in it that's this figure that you see in, or the, the Frederick Lindsay book and TV show, Bronze. Uh, very good, very strange show. And it has this figure played by Stratford Johns in, in Bronze um, and Stephen Ray in The Shadow Line, which is somebody who is basically just a bad gangster but is really the devil you know um, and, and like there's never any brimstone there's never any flying there's never any magic but they're clearly the devil you know um, and this, this kind of the non-supernatural supernatural figure yeah. uh, kind of really interests me so, so, so that and, and it's quite estranging because you know you're in the presence of something very mm. non-natural you know so, um, so I wouldn't criticise things for going for a strain, for, for, for recognition but I do think for me, I'm much more interested in um, in in the model of of estrangement, and I also think that at its worst, recognition there is a whole kind of uh, genre of a kind of degraded, sort of extruded literary fiction product, which is about the calm chapter by chapter decoding of a never very mysterious metaphor. <laughs> um, um, to, to clarify what life is a bit like, you know, uh, uh, um, and and the book ends with the kind of ah yes, that's so true, that's so true, that's very wise. Wise is like this toxically vacuous adjective. So, so I yes, that's, this doesn't interest me very much. So I suppose maybe that counts as criticism. Um, well, one of the things that strikes me about you, and it's just occurred to me now, I suppose, is that. Although you describe these extraordinarily fantastic worlds in many cases, the actual physical descriptions of objects or beings are incredibly uh, concrete. They're very fully realised, and you will talk at length about the specific biologies or the tactile qualities Mm. of of the world. Uh, And that comes across, it's kind of very thick when you're reading it, and it um, seems to, I mean that in the best possible way. Um, Yeah, right. And... uh, (laughs) And I wonder if that is a way of trying to bridge that gap between 
you know, just simply creating something which is fantastic but doesn't necessarily feel like it has its own reality. And if you're, if that kind of world creation is really important, yeah. that it doesn't feel simply like a, you know, yeah. a set of signs or symbols or a, you know, a kind of yeah. world into which you're you dip a toe. That's a really interesting question, and I think I agree with you. I think, I mean, part of you, you, you need a kind of you need a kind of banality of the fantastic. You need a certain mm-hmm. groundedness. Otherwise, you're aware that all you're reading is a symbol and, and a kind of, um, you know, uh, an allegory, uh, which is not terribly interesting. So I think, I think you're quite right that the difference between... The, uh, to put it fantastically crudely, I, I suppose the difference between, you know, a dragon in, a, in, an, in an allegory and a dragon in a, in, a, in a fantasy novel is that... The, the dragon in the fantasy novel is going to weigh a certain amount and leave you know certain kinds of footprints and shit and um, <laughs> you know smell a certain way and all that kind of thing and I think um, so I think that groundedness is a way not of evading kind of semiotic resonance but but also allowing for a, for a kind of specificity and this is the most kind of dignified way of kind of I think uh, kind of um, Legitimating a certain kind of nerdy world-building tradition. Um, I mean that sincerely because it does allow you to do something that you can't do any other way, mm. but it comes at a cost, you know. Mm. And I think that there is a second thing which kind of comes in here, which is... Um, so that, if you like, is about the kind of the recognition of the estranged. It's about the kind of, you know, the banality, the fantastic. And then the, the exact corollary, the exact sort of inverse of this is the kind of the fantastic of the banal, which is where you can think of plenty of books and films and stories often modernist in in inflection which um which do a job of estrangement through a kind of too close description of something very Mm. simple and everyday Mm. just a kind of gimlet precision focus on the object Mm. and they and the objects start to become very uncanny um whether or not they actually have are described in supernatural terms or anything like mm. that, uh, and you see that, for example, in, you know, if you, you look at like the the film, you know, I, I think about the films of Jan Schwenkmeyer or something. I mean, the thing for me, you know, he's got all his un- his strange puppets, but there's also just these kind of languid shots of dust. Mm. It's just endless dust. Or, or you think of like Kafka's Odredek. Mm. You know, it's very, very carefully described as like you know having these number of arms and this string is tied around it in this way and all this and and it and it's this 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 simultaneously very banal and very very estranged object mm. so i think that um you kind of a precision of a precision of description can be a way of uniting those strands maybe you talked about uh you mentioned allegory there and you said earlier when you're talking about iron council that some people have been resistant to it because they felt it was too political um and Politics in your work is something that I wanted to talk to you about, and it ties very closely with this idea of allegory, how you communicate. I mean, there are certain of your works that are kind of... Are very, there are very simple political readings, and I'm sure you've read plenty of criticism about them, things like Embassy Town or The City in the City. Um, and how you negotiate, and it seems to me this idea of allegory and making things concrete, but it's, yeah, it's kind of a fine line. How you create worlds in which there are political things happening but without being didactic or dictatorial or having a moral or a yeah. simple ending and if that's one of the ways that you, that you do it well i mean i've said this I, i've said this before i'm repeating myself but i mean for me the big distinction is between allegory and metaphor and mm. I, I you know to me allegory is generally about 
the decoding to get at to get at the, the the meaning for which the the narrative is the, is the um, is the conduit is the is the vector, and that becomes interesting to me uh, to the extent that it fails. So you read something like George MacDonald, and um, you read like his like like fantasies or um, you know with a ph or or Lilith. You read Lilith by John, and it's clearly a religious allegory. But it starts to break down and go mad, um, and that's where it becomes very interesting. But I like metaphor because metaphor is is much more kind of polyvalent and and sort of it doesn't it doesn't forecl- you know any particular reading do- both doesn't foreclose other readings, and also does a job of kind of estrangement um, because it because it says that two unequal things are equal, you know. And the classic example mm-hmm. is you know Achilles is a lion, it, you know is a Profoundly strange sentence, you know, because um, he just isn't, you know, um, and and it immediately creates this third thing combination of the two. So, um, in terms of, and this th- th- this does have kind of ramifications for political reading. So, I mean, I tend to think in terms of resonances, and I would never ever try to distance myself from the idea of there being political readings and ramifications of fiction, either my own or other people's. Um, but I'm, let's say nine times out of ten because there are exceptions nine times out of ten I'm not particularly interested in fiction that is uh, just a kind of um, you know a way of a way of writing a pamphlet but putting it in the narrative past Mm. that doesn't that isn't the draw for me and so that means two things that means one thing which is that the fairly obvious readings like you know um, uh, in Iron Council, there's a fairly obvious reference, set of references to the Paris Commune, mm-hmm. cannot be where the decoding of the book stops. I mean, yeah. decoding is not a very useful um, uh, metaphor anyway, but, but you know what I mean. And the other thing is that um, I think I think it's a, I like I like the idea of having a much wider sense of the kind of political resonance than a, than, a, than a fairly obvious polemical thing. So I've written polemical short stories before. I've written things that were... There's a short story called An End to Hunger, which is about as close as I get to agitprop. Mm. Um, and it's quite close. Um, but, for example, the short story I read tonight, I think is a very... I think it's very political. Yeah. And to me, it's... And I, I didn't set out to do this, but sort of rereading it, I think it's a story that could only exist during could only have been written during an austerity agenda yeah. it seems to me to be an austerity story so, um, so if we yeah. approach that from the other perspective then you've got London's overthrow and this was a conscious decision on your right to write to, to write what is a polemic can we call it a polemic but it has certain kind of fictional elements to it so there is some kind of bleeding between that boundary or do you think London's overthrow is not, is not should just be read straight well, I, th- I don't think London's Overthrow hides the the politics of the writer. I don't think anyone would read London's Overthrow and, and be terribly surprised to learn what my politics were. Um, but I, I wouldn't call it fiction, and I'm not quite sure I would call it a polemic either. Um, I would, I mean, I, I, I guess I would. I mean, maybe maybe it's a polemic, but I think of it as I guess I think it's 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 an essay, you know, um, and and I like the idea of essays that can kind of set out their stall that don't necessarily have to come to a set of bullet pointed conclusions that can be a way of just kind of trying to kind of contain a moment and that sort of thing um, but I don't want to, it would be disingenuous and craven to deny that 
there is a fairly clear alternate agenda embedded in that yeah. booklet, even though it's not stated. It doesn't state at any point, this is how fucked austerity London is, this is what we should do instead. But I think that that um, alternative... Comes quite close it, to saying that. ...exists as a... <laughs> well, it, it's an absent present, shall we say. <laughs> uh, yeah. So why did you feel it necessary to write that at that particular time? Having explored all these ideas through, through fiction, why, why write a pamphlet? Uh, because the New York Times asked me to. Um, um, I'm sorry, that's really banal. Um, but, well, I got invited to write this thing, and I thought it was interesting because the way they pitched it actually really attracted me to my great surprise, which was essentially the kind of... a moment of... of, of an interstitial moment, because it was post-riot, pre-Olympics, um, mm-hmm. and in the middle of, you know... Uh, Austerity, and we had this oddity of a, we still have this oddity of a then still really quite new kind of coalition government. So there was this, to me, it felt very much like a moment on a fulcrum. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I was already thinking that. And so asked to write um, a kind of s- state of the city sort of rumination and being interested in city writing. And so this is gets to your point, wanting to kind of try and draw on the kind of, um, the kind of, yes, Sinclairian, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. London tradition, at, at the same time as making it much more overtly political than, than that kind of derive. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it just it, it sort of really appealed to me, but it largely appealed to me because it was a time that felt really terrible. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt... and I, Not that things are great now, but I, I really did feel like... It felt quite trembly, you know. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was really, and, and so, and so, it did feel to me quite like a distinct moment. And I wanted more than anything to try to contain the sense of what that moment felt like mm. in a non-fictional way. To mm. say, this is what it feels like to me to be in London at the moment, to be walking around, and to that kind of dry uh, or, or kind of straight reportage would not do it because for me, because that sense that I was trying to to get at is an affective thing and, mm. and, 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 and uh, an affective reaction to, among other things, aesthetics, aestheticised politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it had to be an aesthetic project as well as a political project and as well as a, uh, a, a sort of um, a, 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 a writing project, I guess. It's, you know, you mentioned London there and this idea of write, writing for a certain time, and I wonder how much that has influenced, consciously or otherwise, some of the other books you've written. I mean, I was rereading Iron Council, which we keep returning to, but it was written in 2004. <laughs> Nobody else does. <laughs> <laughs> Now's the time. But it was written in 2004, and it describes this you know, project according to which uh, an extremely powerful state, the most powerful state on that particular world, launches this uh, project to civilise uh, you know, different parts of the mm. world. And the uh, vengeance that it wreaks on it is, is terrorism in the heart of the city. And it felt very pertinent to that time, and I wondered if that was a conscious thing or if it was just something that was on your mind or if mm. it just kind of bled into it. I, see, I never felt like, on, on a conscious level, Iron Council never felt to me like a, particularly a book about the war. Um, mm. Although I'm quite, you know, I mean, you, you know, when you put it like that, I can see what you mean. Um, but it wasn't, that wasn't, at a, con- <laughs> at a conscious level, it wasn't that at all. At a conscious level, it was much more to do with an attempt to see if you could use the tools of the fantastic to write about genuine, fundamental, radical, revolutionary change in a way that realism could not do. 
Uh, and there was a kind of wager that you could, that there was something about those particular tools of estrangement that would allow the non-realistic to depict a kind of rupture in a way that you could not, that, that was more honourable, more, more a way of, of touching that mm. than you could do with, 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 with straight realism. So that was the project that I was aware of carrying out but but as you say you know you're you're steeped in what's going on around you so. I mean do you think do you think that the fantastic allows greater scope for and this is going to sound quite ludicrous but does it allow greater scope for a revolutionary literature precisely because it it takes us outside of you know the language that we're used to and the forms that we're used to and the structures that we're used to I, I wouldn't I would want to unpick what the notion of a revolutionary literature is because I'm I'm always very I'm always very nervous of kind of what sound to me like sort of inflated, inflated political claims for literature precisely because they're so incredibly enticing to me mm. and I want them to be true too much and I don't trust that. Um, so I would want to unpick that. So if you mean like a, a revolutionary literature in the sense of a literature that is actually a political intervention, mm. sadly no. I think literature very rarely is a really strong, meaningful political intervention. I have a much lower opinion of the political um, efficacy of literature than a lot of other people, Mm. despite being someone who loves literature and is committed to politics. If you mean a revolutionary literature in the sense of a literature that is breaking from other literary forms and so on, I suppose when you look at the fantastic of high modernism, certainly, you know, Mm. um, but... It's, it's, a, it's a banality to point out that the fantastic can also just become utterly routinized. Mm. Um, um, so, uh, you know, I, 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 I am very interested in that project of, you know, of estrangement. And I do think in some very attenuated way, there is something about... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Estrangement, which comes closer to the rupture that interests me politically. So to that extent, I'll grant the premise, but I'm very chary of, of, of overdoing it and, and, sort of, and sort of saying, you know, I wrote, this, I wrote this novel, the revolution is a step closer. You know, I, I uh, would that that were so. You know. I suppose, yeah, well, I meant it really in, this, in the sense of if you want to, uh, you know, just in the idea of using new forms of language or using new yeah. structures, which seems like, you know, a necessary thing to be doing and something that I think a lot of people are conscious is, is not happening enough for whatever reason. Well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to kind of downplay the, 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 the project of, 
of renovation. I think renovation as a kind of as a kind of literary level is is really important. And I think that I mean it seems to me that a lot of fiction is. Um, I, I was quite impressed with the Booker list this year. I thought you know I thought that there was. As a salvage operation, um, it was pretty good, you know, um, and I, I take my hat off to them. But I think, I think there's, no, there's no question that the kind of degraded repetition of a certain set of tropes, and the genre is absolutely as guilty of this, it just does a slightly different set of tropes for slightly different purposes, is, 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 is pretty depressing. And I think that, I mean... I mean, obviously, people have the right to read whatever they want to read, but I, don't, I also don't think that... One, one needs to be a kind of uh, you know one needs to kind of set, step back from 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 criticizing and from from trying to kind of um, analyze that and I think that you know one of the things is that I think I think it would be nice if we could find a space to kind of validate uh, a literature that demands an effort and it doesn't mean that that's the only thing you ever want and it doesn't mean and I think this is a. I think this is a political point because I think one of the reasons that there is a, a lot of kind of defensiveness and anxiety about experimental fiction or of any kind um, is is because people have internalized for very understandable reasons internalize a great deal of insecurity. I think people are often you know very insecure readers, and there's a sense that something's being put over on them, and that they don't understand, and that they're you know, and that this leads to a certain kind of defensiveness, and that is that's a terrible thing that that has mm. happened to people you know so I, I, I do think the project of trying to uh, trying to kind of open up the, the possibilities as, as readers that mm. we all are is, is really key and I'm quite optimistic on this because I actually think it's happening I think there's more of an open an opening to, um, to to fiction that asks something of the reader speaking as a reader um, than than there was, I would say, sort of you know, fifteen years before. But that happens hand in glo- that happens at the same time as as a kind of increasing banalization of of the alternative, which is just the kind of you know extruded lit product. Hmm. Where do you see that coming from? That kind of that that renovation is it coming from? I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier about the fact that there seems to be this proliferation of very small communities who are making unusual. You know, writing unusual things and mm. distributing it amongst themselves, but that doesn't seem to be translated into what has become, a, you know, the behemoth of the Booker Prize. Uh, mm. Even though it's making slight changes happen, do you see a bridge between those two, or do you think that they will become more and more separate? That uh, the commercial publishing industry will continue to. No, I'm actually quite. I'm actually kind of tentatively optimistic. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of this is driven by kind of changes in. Uh, I mean, the, I mean, I know it's a cliche, but you know, the internet and digital printing and mm-hmm. so on really does change things, and 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 establishes that, um, you know, there are readerships for all sorts of things that are, that are not, like the the behemoths that you're talking about, um, and and I actually suspect that some of the mainstream publishers will start to find spaces for some of this stuff to a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, publishing is a weird industry because. There really, you know, there really are. It, it is, it is just weirdly not the case that publishers only publish things that they think are going to make loads of money. Publishers do sometimes publish things they think will lose money because they love the books so much. Mm. Now they have to do it in certain ways. They have to fiddle around with, you know, uh, putting out something that's going to make a lot of money as well, and so on and so forth. Um, but actually, I think there is a certain amount of space for that, and I think that space is probably 
a little bit larger than it has been. So I suspect that you'll see a lot of kind of jostling for position. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I don't think the, I don't think the main. I am tempted to say I'm not sure about this, but I don't think the main block or problem is the publishing industry, for all its manifold flaws. I think the main block and problem in terms of the notion of a kind of a, mu- a much more open notion of what literature can be, is the kind of psychic condition of people under you know <laughs> modern capitalism. Um, well, we'll change that. Then. Yeah, could you get on that, please? Um, <laughs> Um, should we open up to questions? Mm. Questions? Do you want to? Oh, yeah, shall I? Um, yeah, please. I was just wondering if you want to. Thank you. Um, first of all, I love your books and I'm a great fan, so thank you. And um, I was wondering if you would be willing to speak a little bit about the connection between the city and the fantastic and the ways that that plays out in your novels. Uh, can people at the back hear the question? Yeah. Is it okay? Um, sure. I mean, I don't. I don't know that. Honestly, I don't know that I have anything particularly interesting to say about it. I think it's. I mean, it seems to me to be. It's a fairly self-evident. You know that I. You know, I'm a. I'm a city animal, um, and I think. Um, I mean, I suppose for me, what's interesting about cities is is there is 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 the kind of chaotic, coagulum, nature that they that they embed, and that that they seem to me to be to that extent. They are, cities are well any city worth the salt any city that is not a kind of you know monocultural um, uh, you know architecturally um, uh, sort of monolith city is a chimera uh, a more or less unplanned chimera and the chimera is also the kind of the default figure of the fantastic I mean the most basic level the figure of the fantastic is a monster and at its most basic level a monster is one bit of one thing on another thing, uh, which is a chimera. That's, you know, you take two things, you chop them in half, bang, monsters, you know. Um, so, you know, cities are all monsters to that extent. And that's why, um, you know, that, 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 the kind of joyful fecundity of chaos where things that are not nominally supposed to go together do, in fact, go together. And then you open up the whole box of, well, what does that mean, not nominally supposed to go together, you know? And this is why, you know... The great problem with you know, um, uh, you know the the the, the notion the notion of multiculturalism as essentially a um, a pathology that at best one must learn to live with and at worst uh, one must do away with is I mean it's not just sociologically crass obviously it's sociologically crass it's also you know it's not just aesthetically crass um, which it is also. Um, <laughs> I've forgotten what the other crass it is, but it's, 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 it's very crass. So I think, I mean, I think it's that, it's that, that for me, I suppose if I had to pick one thing, it's, it's the question of syncrasis. It's the question of, 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 of a kind of magical merging of things. And, and, you know, I mean, you walk down a street in London and it's the most bizarre thing because you, you, you're walking through an absolutely chaotic palimpsest of history in the most incredible way. Uh, I mean, it's extraordinary. You're, you're walking through a broken time machine. You're walking through the exhaust, you know, of, um, you know, of, of, um, of a fucked up TARDIS. This is mad, you know. It's amazing. Um, and I suppose that's what cities are. So to me, it, it's an aesthetic position, but I think it is also a political position, which is that, you know, city, cities, cities are fantastic in that sense. Um, does that 
remotely guess at what you're talking <laughs> about? Okay, yeah. Okay. You did you have a question? Yeah. 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 Thank you. Hi. Um, as a translator and as a woman, I have to thank you for Bella's cold wine. And uh, I have a question that about something that wasn't touched on before. You mentioned a kind of an occasion to, for um, a subversion of, say, traditional class relationships in general and in your literature um, in particular. But I was also wondering if that um, intersects with a subversion of traditional gender um, relationships. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not 100% sure I understand the question. You're saying, I mean, you're saying, do I try to do that? Is there fantastic stuff that tries to do that? What's the exact question? Forgive well, me. Well, um, is that something that you find important? Is it something that you find an occasion to do in while subverting other things, like normality? I would say there are a lot of, there are a lot of uh, powerful women throughout all of your novels. I mean, if that's, if that's, is that what we're talking about? The, role, the fact that... There are a lot of women female leaders. There are a lot of... They're kind of more reliable, generally. There's an interesting paradox, it seems to me, in terms of the representation of gender, which is that if you're dealing... If you come from a position that gender is uh, an issue, uh, you know, um, and that things are not perfect, there, there are two, in some ways, quite contradictory ways that you can address that aesthetically in fiction. One is to... Uh, you know, and if you if if you if you take the position that this is essentially you know this is a pro- this is a problem of inequality, there are two ways you can deal with it. One is to, as rigorously as possible, depict the inequality. So you take the inequality very 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 seriously as a starting point, and the other is to do the exact opposite and to pitch a world in which no one gives a shit. You know, um, and the, and so and I suppose what I would like to do, and I, I don't I don't think I can claim to be doing anything wildly unusual here, um, although, you know, what you say is, is, is lovely, but I, I, um, I guess I kind of oscillate between the two, so that, you know, The Scar is very clearly a book set in a world in which gender inequality is a real problem. Uh, then the gender relations on the train in Railsea, if anyone's read that, is the opposite. It's, it, you know, to the extent that it has something to say about gender, it is essentially, a, a, you know, a, a kind of relatively sort of um, convivial depiction <coughs> Of, of a collective in which gender is not really an issue. And, and th- th- those contradictory ways of dealing with that, it seemed to me to be um, sort of, you know, both equally valid at different times. I would, I would actually want to add a note of self-criticism about Bellis Coldwine, though. I mean, I'm glad you liked her as a character, and I like her as a character a lot. She's Jane Eyre, clearly, right? <laughs> she's, she's goth Jane Eyre. Um, um, part of my problem, I suppose, I read a book, there's a very... There's a, very, there's, a, there's a book called King Kong Theory by Virginie Despont, um, which is, I think, a very powerful book about gender and, uh, and, and, and sexism and so on. And um, one of the things she says, I don't have the, quote, the exact quote to hand, but one of the things she says is, you know, uh, she, she's, the, she's the director of Bézmois and a kind of a, a French feminist writer and filmmaker and so on. And she, she says, you know... Um, Male writers only only ever write women they want to sleep with, uh, and this is a really, really powerful criticism, a really powerful, quite shattering critique in a way, despite it being incredibly obvious. Um, and I mean, I suppose a lot of the time, I think what happens is that your intentions are honourable, and that's not unimportant, but that there are also obviously lacunae and problems and so on. And part of, I think. 
my problem with Bella's cold wine is that it's too obvious that I want to sleep with her. Um, and I'm a little embarrassed about that. You know, um, uh, you know, there is a certain kind of emo wish fulfillment thing going on there. You know, uh, there's a, a few too many descriptions of bruised purple makeup. <laughs> you know. um, so that, that, you know, that axis of sexualization is, is very tricky because you don't want to sex is important you don't want to like to write that out to write characters without sex is not to honor them at all and this you know classically the desexed gay character you know uh, who's made safe by not fucking you know um but at the same time to try to write you know look through books by men and try and find women that the writer doesn't want to fuck it's quite shocking and I, I have to hold my hands up here. I'm trying to... Well, anyway, that's another story. Yeah. Um. Can, I, can I just pick up what you just said? I mean, I think it is shocking in one way. But it's also... There is a difference between a man writing about a woman and a woman writing about a woman. And a particularly a heterosexual writer writing about a woman. It's... I mean, I think that, in fact, what you're doing is almost assuming too much of a guilt in that, you know, that, uh, that I think that the real difficulty must be that when you're wanting to write about a woman who is powerful, who is going to be important, who is going to be strong, in a sense, it's almost that those are the constructions that, in fact, people want in terms of the other, in their own personal sort of lives. And I... Th- I just think it's very, very difficult to conceive of the way a man could write about a woman without having that at the back of their head, unless, of course, they were gay, you know. Yeah, I mean, to some extent I would take that. I don't think there's a right... I don't think there's a kind of simple answer to any of this. I think that, but I think an awareness of, of, of these kind of dynamics is, 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 quite, uh, is quite important. And I think a lot of the time... You know the thing about the thing about cultural tropes, particularly I think, particularly tropes of, of an oppressive society, is that they get you coming or going. You know, like you're like totally contradictory cliches and stereotypes can work. You know, in lockstep to to traduce people. You know, uh, so you know, black people are either stupid or wise. You know. <laughs> as an example, you know, in, 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 in classic kind of racist Hollywood films, you know, and you can think about, and, and I think you see this also with, 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 with gender, you know, these totally contradictory things. Um, and I'm, I don't think there's a way out of it, and I think particularly, as you say, I mean, the, you know, the libidinal draw is a real thing. So I'm not saying you're going to be able to exercise it. I'm not even sure it would be desirable to exercise it, but I think being aware that if essentially what you're doing when you're writing a strong woman... Um, is that you're exercising a kind of, you know, the elements of fantasy that are going to be inevitable in that, it probably behoves you to be a little bit aware of them. Let's put it no stronger than that. I lost track of who had their hands up. Sorry. Oh, sorry, I see you here. I love, love, love this idea of the uncanny sentence and that kind of homeless veering between the recognised and the strange. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about where your own writing starts from. Does it start in that kind of homeless place? Or does it start with the homeless idea of the story itself? The lovely story that you read us 
had this beautiful synthetic molding together of both those interests. Where do they where do the stories begin? Just specify for me again the two poles that you Well, as you beautifully described, the the familiar and oh. the strange. Yeah. Um well, I mean, a, a lot of this is a lot of this is an inheritance from a from, uh, from 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 genre. I'm sorry to repeat myself, but it really is. I mean, you know, one of the one of the specific differences. You know, there's a there's a there's a famous opening line. Uh, uh, you know, um, I can't even remember who it's by now, but the door iris open. You know, now the moment, or yeah, you know, or the clock struck thirteen. You know, I mean, it, you know, so 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 you have a sentence which. In its kind of you know subject verb object you know is is utterly banal, but that pitches you into a world you don't know anything about. And um, a lot of the time, the things that alienate civilians are precisely the things that that are draws to geeks, like the neologisms. I don't know what this word means. You know, I was pushed out of this book because I could not work out what this word means, what this thing is. Um, and to me, that's to me, that's kind of an appeal. So there is a kind of a kind of pulp element of this, but then, um, but then I think I, I, I think um, I mean I suppose for me as a, as a as a reader and as a writer, for all that I make no bones about privileging and being more interested in estrangement, estrangement on its own will. You know, it, it loses me, and this is, you know, um, th- this is where I think there is clearly a link, for example, between the kind of fantastic tradition and, say, the kind of surrealist tradition. But at its most untethered, and I would say this is a huge uh, lover of surrealist writing. At its most untethered, uh, I, I at least lose lose it with 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 absolute surrealist writing. Whereas I think, you know, as we were talking about with Kafka, that kind of reintroduction of, of, a, of a moment of recognition can, can, can thereby become a kind of, uh, a, a sort of um, kind of radically estranging moment in itself. I suppose at the sentence level, I think estrangement and recognition are both necessary. I think when you get to the kind of book level and the story level, I start to get much less patient with recognition. Um, does that make any sense at all, I think? This person had their hand up for ages. So. Sorry if this uh, sounds a bit like an English Lit A-level question, but uh, the, the label slipstream, do you think that's useful in describing something that sits between um, uh, literary, f- literary fiction and sci-fi? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 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 don't re- I don't really mind. I mean, I kind of... The, the problem, you know, any 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 label is what I am not. I'm not one of these people who says, "Why do we have labels? Everything should just be called fiction and put together." Because I think that's disingenuous. I think there are aesthetic specificities to different traditions. I would maybe talk more in terms of tradition than genre, but you know, I'm not going to go to the wall over that. Um, I think that you know, a description like Slipstream is undoubtedly useful for a certain set of books at a certain point. Whether it becomes a kind of scientific category for all time is a different question. I mean, all these categories are contingently useful and then lose their use value later on. So Slipstream had, a, had, had its moment. I'm, these days I'm somewhat unconvinced as to what you would gain from thinking in those terms. Um, but 
if someone can make a case for it, for a particular book or whatever, I'm very open to it. I mean, I have a fairly open attitude to things like categories and stuff. And it always seems to me, you know, show me what you gain from this. Show me what you gain talking about literature in this way that I didn't have if I didn't use that. And if you, if you can show me, great. You know, I'm totally up for it. And that does change historically. So, um, so yeah, so I, I'm open to it. It's not a word I would tend to use a lot. I, uh, if I can come back to the question of translation just for a moment. Would you say you would go to some lengths to work with the people who translate the works that you've written into their languages and to kind of counter the tendency to explain everything and to make everything as clear as possible? Would you intervene to, to ensure that the estrangement that's there in the first language is also there in the translated work? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I would try, but, you know, in most cases, I, I mean, the only one I could really do that with at all would be French, and I'm not claiming to be a great French speaker or reader. Um, but certainly, I do like working with translators, and it, it's interesting because, you, you know, I, 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 I have a kind of fantasy, which is probably totally spurious, but I have a fantasy that I can tell a good translator from the questions they ask, you know, uh, about nuance and so on. Um, and certainly I always like it when I get approached. And, and some, my French translator, who I, who I know, you know, is, um, is, 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 is amazing. And, I mean, she sends me, like, you know, really long, incredibly detailed questions about nuance. And a lot of the time I don't know the answer and I have to stop, stop and think about it and so on. So I, I like that sort of thing. Um, but I, I, I would be lying if I said I kind of set, you know, I kind of demand it of everyone. But it, but certainly when translators approach me, I'm, I'm really pleased and I like it. And I and I do talk quite a lot about exactly that kind of uh, that that attempt to kind of maintain a kind of instability and a nuance. Um, so quite often my answers to questions are kind of well, yes and no, you know, um, which probably they really love. You know, <laughs> you know, and, um, there is a there, I. My la- the, not my last book, sorry, Kraken has a phrase in it. The whole point of the phrase in the book is that it's untranslatable into French. So I had quite an interesting conversation with the translator about this, and she said it might be the only... I don't know what her solution is, but she said it might be the only time in her fiction translating career that she leaves it in English and puts a translator's footnote, um, given the entire point. So. Sorry? Oh, sorry. Um... It's a book title. It's an invented book called Uncanny Blossom because French ludicrously does not have a word for blossom. And, um, and uncanny is... It has several different words, each encompassing aspects, but not all. So can't translate it. Language of poetry, my ass. <laughs> uh, hi. Um, as an uh, aspiring and currently unpublished writer um could you possibly just share a little bit about your writing process and like how because i know that you're a really big harold pinter fan for example and i know that pinter did not plan anything he just sort of just sat there and wrote i mean you know where do you get your ideas from and like how do you do you write every day and like do you have a particular process about the whole thing or i mean not not too much obviously but i just want to know like (laughs) you wave at me when i've said enough i plan neurotically and completely I plan from start to finish I, 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 um, I find the idea of writing without planning terrifying um, so I never do that um, 
And I think I, I, I would go further and say, you know, you often get asked for advice for writers who are starting and so on. I, I think nine times out of ten, because there are exceptions, but nine times out of ten, uh, you know, what stops people finishing the books that they're writing when they're starting is kind of freezing before the scale of the thing. And the best way to avoid freezing before the scale of the thing is to do it in bite-sized chunks. And the best way to do it in bite-sized chunks is to plan it in advance and plan it much more than you think. Uh, and then to write 500 words every day and not to worry about, you know, what's going to happen at the end, but to worry about getting, you know, Damien from the kitchen to the bathroom, which you know you have to do because it says so in your plan, you know. And that, that I, I, I think, is incredibly banal and incredibly unpinterian. Um, but that's what I would recommend. The question where do you get your ideas from is unanswerable. I mean, it's, it's not uh, the same place you do. I, I, I mean, I could, I could go on, but it's sort of, I think, right, I mean, there's no way of, of, of answering that, really. Um, ideas are easy. I think most people have many, many, many more ideas than they think they have all the time. It is just not true that, like, writers and artists, like, have special have special access to ideas at best what we have is a slightly less cruel bullshit filter that doesn't kick in and say don't be silly (laughs) that's what I would say Um, I've I've read that um, you completed a PhD at some point in the past Um, I think I read about it in the White Review as well Um, I wondered whether you thought the process of writing fiction and the process in researching and writing academic work overlapped at all or complemented or, or how they met in any way. Um, not at a... Well, I mean, I suppose, of course, they do in the sense that, you know, you want to, you want to write well and, you know, style is important to me and uh, I, you know, I, I quite like, you know, in scholarship and stuff, I like books that I, f- I find, you know, I think are well-written. I, I like, I like, I like a, a, a scholar who's not scared of a bit of Rococo stylings. Um, but um, I don't... I mean, to me, they feel like they come from quite different places because it's, t- because it's to do with conclusions and arguments, I think. I mean, there's no question that in terms of the ideas that go into them, they, they both come from the same pot, but they do quite different things with them. Um, I mean... You, you, you. There are kind of rather dull things like discipline, like you know, the self-discipline overlaps both ways. But I'm, 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 I don't, you know, I, I don't think I would strongly argue. I think I have quite a different head on when I'm writing uh, scholarly stuff than when I'm writing fiction. Would be, would be my honest answer. Could you just talk about how you feel about your work being adapted for screen? We, we, we have discussions. We have talks. Um, I mean, I'm open-minded to it. I mean, it's not, it's not something that, I would, uh, that I'm falling over for because I think there is, a, there, is a, there is a sense you sometimes guess in Hollywood which is essentially this notion that, you know, if a book behaves very, very well and eats all its greens, then it might grow up to be a film, you know. <laughs> and I don't... I, I think... I mean, I'm not interested in that. And, and um, so... In terms of adaptation, I'm open-minded, but I would have a sort of reasonably high bar. I mean, I've turned things down. Uh, I'm not saying I deserve a cookie for that, but I'm just saying it's not like film, you know, at any cost. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm, op- I'm very open to the idea, and there are a couple of people we're talking to now in terms of TV and film, and um, 
and I would like to have some sort of input and so on. But I, you know, you, you could drive yourself mad that way. So um, I'm not quite sure whether you have a specific substantive question in mind or <laughs> if it's just like whether I'm open to it. And certainly I'm open to it. I mean, I'm quite sceptical because they'll probably ruin it because, <laughs> you know. I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of go back and forth about film because films were so shit for so long. And then you, I do wonder maybe whether there's a little bit more space for some kind of a mainstreaming of a certain type of uh, openness, a certain type. I mean, it's a really weird thing. If you look at, like, a 1970s film now, like the most kind of gross, degraded, crappy kind of mainstream film, uh, like... So look at Dirty Harry. I swear to God, watch Dirty Harry now. It looks like an art film. I swear to God, I'm not being provoked. It looks and sounds like the, the mise-en-scene and the sound direction and stuff. It would count as a fucking art film now because in the 90s and early noughties, this kind of incredible kind of um, product shape. But I do also think that's beginning to shift a little bit. I mean, these things come and go. So at the moment, you know, you've got people like... Nicholas Winding Refn and people like that who are doing, try, you know, it doesn't mean you always think it works, but there's something a bit more interesting and so on. So I'm quite open and I, you know, I have my like hit list of favourite directors who I think it would be interesting if something were to happen with them and so on. But the thing is, you have absolutely no power over this. So if you sort of go into this thinking, uh, you know, yes, I'm really committed to this and I, I, I know exactly what I want, you'll just, you'll just go mad. So I'm open minded, but uh, I have a reasonably high bar. And I have a suspicion of preemptive failure. Does that answer the question at all? How did you find adapting the city in the city for stage? I didn't adapt it. You didn't have anything no, to do with it. No, and, um, there's a small theatre company in the states that adapted it to a play, and um, uh, they they have they, they they have their own writers. Who, their, their, sh- their their shtick, this company, is that they tra- they, they they adapt uh, novels into stage plays, and I didn't do it. Um, I mean, I. I I, I've written. Did you enjoy seeing it. Yeah, it was. It was. I found it very moving to see it. I mean, it's not. They didn't do everything the way I would have done, but you've got to sort of separate yourself from that from, to some extent. And I found the idea of all this effort and stuff going into this thing, and um, no, I, 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 I enjoyed it, and I wasn't bored. And frankly, in the theatre these days, that is like not bad <laughs> uh, at least for me I mean maybe I'm just a Philistine but I mean I'm, I'm disappointed and bored far more often than not uh, in, in this. Um, so yeah so I, I don't know about adaptation people often ask about like screenwriting and stuff I don't know if I could do screenwriting I can write scripts I, can, I write comic scripts and I can do that and that's actually quite close to screenwriting but uh, you know first and foremost I'm a fiction writer did you have a question? yeah are we okay for can yeah. we for, okay yeah Thank you. Um, I was intrigued by your answer to the the question about translation, Um, but I suppose in a way this is applicable to film as well. Uh, If you have such a great translator who's asking you such wonderful nuanced questions that are are difficult or impossible to answer, um, and if you enjoy uh, operating between the familiar and the strange, and, and there's nothing stranger than the language you don't understand, then does translation not offer you a tremendous opportunity to just change everything. <laughs> and do you enjoy that, or, or do you resist it? I, I'm quite old school in one way, which is that I have a fairly strong sense of the closed text, you know. Um, like, 
hypertext novels and things make me so anxious. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, like I, you know, I want my beginning and my middle and my end. You know, so um, I do sometimes. It seems to me like when I've put a book out there and it's become it becomes its own canon to me. And then I, there are, there are things that I regret about. I mean, there are things about all of my books that I would do differently. In some cases, things that I think I really did not do well, and that I I, I wish with the benefit of years that I could revise. But I, I I feel in a sense I know some writers do revise their books and so on. I I feel a bit differently about short stories. Short stories like you know they're published in a collection or whatever and sorry in a in a magazine and then maybe you revise them for a collection somehow in according to the entirely opaque and nebulous rules of my head that's okay um whereas with a novel i would much rather sort of write a kind of contextualizing introduction in which i sort of said you know uh i i now have issues with the way i did this and this and this but this is what this was this is canon i think this may be a kind of D &D nerd thing like once it's out there it becomes canon and i can't mess with it it seems to me the most interesting way to do this which not everyone can do and i've never really I've tried to do on a couple of occasions, but I haven't had occasion to do as much as I'd like, is what Ursula Le Guin does, which uh, you, you mentioned her. And, you know, like her own revisions to the Earthsea books is such an extraordinary thing to do, such an interesting thing to do, because, you know, she, you know, wrote the first Earthsea book and, according to her own story, you know, then came some years later to realise how much she had internalised various sexist tropes which were embedded in the in the in the book in terms of the relationship of men and women to magic and so on and so forth and rather than writing a new edition and rather than writing an introduction so what she did is she wrote a new book in that series which was a critique of the first book while retaining the rules of the world so everything follows through but the thing that is simply given in the first book becomes deeply problematized in the fourth book that's fucking awesome. That's just really cool. So the various things that I, I, I feel now I've done wrong, but both at a, you know, uh, whether it's political, literary, both, whatever, I, I hope maybe, you know, best case scenario, I would try and do something like that. Um, and there's a little bit of that. There's certain aspects of Iron Council which are auto-critiques of certain aspects of Purdue District Station, for example. Um, you know, there is... At no point in Perdido Street Station does any remade speak as a, mm. a as a narrator. You know, so that we had to fix that. You know, um, and 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 apologise for that and make a point about that. Um, but failing, you know, fa failing that maybe an introduction or something. But I, I don't. But I wouldn't. You know, the idea of doing a kind of um, doing a kind of new edition. When I when I when my first book. This is the last thing I say about this. I, but like the, my first book, King Rat was published in Britain and then an American publisher bought it and they wanted, they thought one chapter, they were right, they thought one chapter didn't quite work and they wanted some more details. So they just had me write an extra kind of six paragraphs or whatever. Um, and the idea that, like, the ontological agony this caused me because it's like, <laughs> well, well, now what is King Rat? What, what is this thing? How is it a book? There are two completely different, but like, what, what does that even mean? You know, like, I'm so upset by that. I think that this is my kind of OCD soul has a certain, you know, so, so I couldn't do that to, to my translators or to me, I think. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk 
or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.